Good afternoon. I'm Robin Shate, Senior Education Policy Analyst here at the Center for American Progress and co-author with Michelle McLaughlin of the paper we're releasing here today, Realizing the Promise, How State Policy Can Support Alternative Certification Programs. I'd like to welcome all of you to what promises to be an exciting discussion about why alternative certification programs are needed and how state policy changes can support high-quality, innovative programs. A recent McKinsey and Company analysis of the top performing school systems in the world found that the quality of an education system cannot exceed the quality of its teachers. We at CAP agree with the sentiment and understand that highly effective teachers are the foundation of all other public school improvement efforts, particularly those that help disadvantaged students. Therefore, policies to reform systems for recruiting, retaining, and compensating effective teachers are a high priority for our education program. And we believe that alternative certification is a promising strategy for increasing the pool of talented teaching candidates, particularly for high poverty schools and subject shortage areas. Alternative certification programs generally target applicants who already have an undergraduate degree, but just need the education coursework in order to become certified. These programs frequently streamline many of the licensure requirements expected from graduates of traditional programs at colleges of education and teachers often serve as the teacher of record while they're completing their training. The programs have received a great deal of media attention and have proliferated in recent years. According to data from the National Center for Education Information, more than half of current programs have been established in the last 15 years. In 2008, all states in the District of Columbia had some type of alternate route to certification. And about a third of teachers hired nationally are prepared through alternative certification programs. Yet alternative certification programs vary tremendously in scope and quality, and many states don't have policies in place to support the expansion of high-quality programs. And perhaps one silver lining to the current recession may be that more talented mid-career professionals with math or science backgrounds are interested in teaching. So we need to be sure that we have the high-quality alternative certification programs to attract and retain them. In our paper, we argue that the promise of alternative certification programs hasn't yet been realized, but it could be realized with some changes to state policy. This is CAP's second paper on this topic. The first entitled Thinking Outside the University, Innovation and Alternative Teacher Certification by Davida Gatlin was released last March and profiled innovative alternative certification programs including teacher residency programs, online programs, and programs at community colleges. It made several recommendations for state policies that would support innovation. You can find it on our website if you're interested. And the paper that we're releasing today is well aligned with our first paper, but delves more deeply into the state policies that are needed to encourage the growth of high-quality programs. Our discussion today will be informed by the paper, but also the expertise of our panelists. We're lucky enough today to hear from top policy experts and an outstanding practitioner. We'll start with a presentation of the paper by co-author Michelle McLaughlin. We'll then hear comments from each of our panelists, followed by a brief discussion among the panelists, and then an opportunity for the audience to ask questions. You have the complete bios of the panelists, so I'll just give you some highlights. Michelle McLaughlin is Vice President of Federal and State Policy for Teach for America, where she leads state policy work that is focused primarily on teacher licensure and certification issues and provides policy expertise to the government affairs team on federal education policy. Alex Johnston is CEO of the Connecticut Coalition for Achievement Now, or CONCAN, a state advocacy organization. He leads its effort to bring parents, educators, business people, public servants, and community leaders together in a common effort to make great public schools available to every child in Connecticut. 
Rochelle Patterson is a senior policy analyst in the National Education Association's Teacher Quality Department, where she focuses on teacher licensure standards, evaluation, and licensing boards. And Scott Cartland is the principal of Webb Wheatley Elementary School in Northeast, Washington, DC. As principal, he's charged with leading a school restructuring effort required by the No Child Left Behind law. So let's begin. Thanks, Robin. Can everyone hear me? <clears throat> I have a bit of a cold, so. Um, so I'm really happy to be here. I've actually been to a lot of Center for American Progress events over the years, and so it's kind of fun to be at the grown-up table up here looking out at all of you. Uh, before I begin, I do want to just give a shout-out to Emily Feitzritzer, who I think is here in the back. Hi. I've actually never met Emily, but I really consider her um, sort of the doyen of the alternative certification movement, and she's been a great resource to me in, in doing this work. I also want to acknowledge the um, National Center on Teacher Quality, which has done a lot of work in this area, and really our, the title of our report actually kind of riffs off of some of their work. And although I'm a co-author of this paper, I have to say that the knowledge that's brought to bear in it really comes from Teacher America and the experience of placing teachers over 19 years now and across 24 states. And so it's really not just my paper. It's really the, the organization's paper. And in particular, I have a colleague, Lee McGoldrick, who's one of these quiet pioneers in this area. What I do think this paper brings um, that's new to the policy dialogue is that it was co-written with Teacher America, essentially, and so informs uh, the policy landscape based on actual experience on the ground trying to bring teachers into a variety of states across the country that have very different licensure schemes and certification requirements. So I think that's sort of what we add to the dialogue here. I think the paper is also timely because of this unprecedented um, situation we found ourselves in with the new stimulus funds. I think there's a lot of opportunity there, both in the state incentive grants and in the innovation fund, to ramp up a lot of these efforts. So I'm very excited about that as well. And I do hope that, to, to a certain extent, um, this paper provides a blueprint for advocates and states who want to move forward with this work to either um, create an alternate route program if their state does not have one or improve one that they already have. The paper itself is very straightforward in its approach, so I don't think it's necessary to run through every aspect of it. We summarize the, the research on alternative certification programs, and then we talk about some of the policy barriers and make suggestions about how to essentially make these policies more robust. Uh, we did categorize um, the policies into three buckets. One is minimizing participant burden, the other is ensuring program quality, and the third is encouraging innovation and growth. Um, I wanted to just sort of frame, I thought I would just talk about the cross-cutting findings as opposed to trying to talk about each of the buckets separately, in part because I think we have a great panel and I really want to uh, hear from them, particularly the practitioner, which I'm sorry you're at the end, that doesn't seem right, but <laughs> maybe that makes everyone stay to hear you, right? Um, so one thing I think in doing this work, and I do work with our regions, and we think in Teacher American regions and the rest of the world thinks in states and districts, but we're in 29 regions across the country and 24 states. And when I'm doing this work, I find that like one of the things that really makes it move forward is that if you really embrace alternate route 
candidates as equal to traditionally certified candidates. And I would say that in a lot of states, this is still not the case. I still think that there's a sense that traditionally certified candidates are better. And I think there's an ever-growing body of research to show that this is not necessarily the case. Some of this research has been done about Teacher America. Some of it has been done on uh, the new teacher program in Louisiana and other places. And then we even have just recently the Institute of Education Sciences came out with a study that showed even with non-selective alternate route programs, candidates, um, whether they come through alternate pathways or traditional pathways, are essentially equal. So I think moving forward, states sort of have to embrace this idea to really get the right policies in place. Secondly, I think that there's, there's issues that relate to the license itself that someone comes in on as a teacher and then the program structure. And some of the, sometimes the barriers or what needs to be changed really are inherent to the license and not to the program itself. So at the risk of getting too wonky here, I just wanted to spend a couple of minutes on it because it's actually really important. Um, I think historically some states have brought uh, alternate route candidates in on emergency certificates, temporary certificates, permits. Um, I would, you know, I would postulate that these are actually substandard licenses. And so what, for a state to really move forward with a robust alternate certification program, they should be bringing in their candidates on a license or certificate that is specifically designed for those candidates. Uh, because what you have with things like permits or, um, other types of emergency licensure, you have restrictions usually that are built into the licensure structure. Things like you cannot uh, issue, these licensors or permits cannot be issued if a traditionally certified teacher is available to fill that slot. Sometimes there's a restriction to certain grade levels, 9 to 12. Sometimes there's a restriction based on subject area shortages or geographic restrictions. So I think for states that are really embracing this idea of having a robust alternate route program, they need to look at their licensing structure and if possible create a license that's really designed for alternate route candidates. Because part of what a, a well-designed license and program can also uh, be set up to do is recognize that these are really clinical programs. So you're going to get something very intensive up front. I mean, hopefully you're going to have a very selective program, right? So you're going to have procedures in place to select the best people in. Then you're going to have a very, you know, there's a limited time that you're going to do something very intensive with people to get them ground and get them ready to start in the classroom. And then really the bulk of their training is going to be in the classroom. And so it's really a clinical model. And so states that embrace that model, that this is the pathway, I think are going to end up with better programs. Um, Another tricky issue that comes up a lot, and I'm not sure maybe Alex will speak to this as well, but um, <clears throat> No Child Left Behind allows uh, states to provide, you know, you can come in at, with a major for content, or you can come in with coursework equivalent to a major, or you can come in having passed a test. But in many states, it's not one or the other, it's both. So you have to have a major and pass the test. And I would just put forward that this restricts your hiring pool. And this, as you can imagine, is a very thorny issue to deal with in states. Um, I think there's intuitive sense that if you majored in something, you're automatically going to be better at teaching it. And there's a sense that if you only let someone pass the, the state exam, that that might be a lower standard. But I would say, based on our experience, that we have found this not to be the case. 
we have internal data that, I mean, it's not the kind of thing where I would do, you know, it's not a peer research study or anything like that, but we have looked at our data on people who've gone into an assignment having a major and gone into a teaching assignment just having passed, say, the Praxis two in the content area, and we don't see a difference in, student, in the performance of their students. When we compare the student achievement data of the two groups, we don't see a difference. So I think that this is an area where if states are willing to take the leap of faith and allow candidates to come in, and there are 16 states that already do this, and if they allow people to come in having taken the Praxis two or whatever the state exam is, they'll not only increase their their pool of applicants, but I think they'll also maybe surprise themselves by finding that you know candidates they they attain knowledge, content knowledge through many pathways, and it's not necessarily just with your major, especially if you're a career changer. Um, and one example we always talk about is Jason Cameras, who is a Teach for America alum. He was National Teacher of the Year. He was a teacher in D.C., and he was a political science major for undergrad. Uh, he went to Princeton, and he, he couldn't have taught in most of the states. In, he taught math. He taught seventh grade math very successfully, obviously. He was National Teacher of the Year, uh, and he couldn't have taught in many states, the majority of the states in this country. So I think, and he's not just an outlier. I think people's instinct to say, oh, he's an outlier, but he's not. We have lots of examples like Jason, and so I think we need to look at our policies to see if we can figure out ways to be a little more flexible here. Um, and I understand, this moves me to my Lex comment, which is that I understand that state's perspective is that they have to always, they're the guardians, right? They want to make sure they're not lowering the bar somehow on quality. And I think, you know, if we can move towards a licensure system that is more performance-based, I think you'll get away from these issues and these concerns. It should be about what you're able to do with kids in the classroom. And I know some states are moving this direction, including the District of Columbia, and it's very exciting to see that happen. Um, so I say all this, but I have to say in doing this work in the states that this is tough work, right? I mean, because it, it requires that we all examine our own assumptions. And, you know, I went to Fordham University as an undergraduate and uh, had this Jesuit professor who used to have, he had this expression where he'd say, if you challenged him a little too much on something, he'd say, stop pulling at my spiritual glue. And I do think, like, there's something about this work that pulls at people's spiritual glue. You know, you're just sort of saying, look at this like this, and people sort of resist it and don't want to look at it that way. But I think to move forward, we have to all be willing to do this. And then last, my last point is just that, you know, I think people sometimes look at programs like Teach for America and say, well, why aren't you doing more in the policy arena? You should be leading the charge. You should be out there. You should be doing this and that. And, I mean, we do a lot of quiet work, honestly. I mean, we're not super interested in getting a ton of credit for changing things when we are able to change them. But I also think think that um, as Checker Finn and Rick Hess have suggested in a paper that we serve more as proof points that if you make these changes these are the kinds of things that can happen and that and then it ends up being good for kids and so I think that's really more of the role for the educational entrepreneurial organizations as you might want to call them and organizations like CONCAM this is a nice transition actually I think are more naturally positioned to do the advocacy work thanks Michelle Alex Thank you. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. And Michelle, picking up where you left off, I think the only bone I would have to pick with Rick Hess and Checker Finn in that paper is that um, we consider ourselves as a state-level education reform advocacy organization to be highly entrepreneurial. Um, and it, there's not actually a distinction uh, in that sense, in that um, the way that we do our work, um, we have to attend very much to the human talent pipeline of people who work for us and um, how we can create a network of state-level reform groups around the country that can partner 
with organizations like Teach for America or New Leaders for New Schools or other entrepreneurs in this space to change state policy in ways that are critical uh, in order to actually get these ideas put in place on the ground. And that's kind of the jumping off point, I think, for, for my comments, because um, I read this report, um, and I, I hope you guys have too. Um, and, you know, when you read through it, it really reads like common sense. There's, there's not a lot in this that would seem controversial. Um, it seems, you know, and, and you can certainly see all the uh, citations, the claims in here are documented um, about what sorts of programs are effective. Um, so the question that, that, you know, you might be left asking is, why aren't we doing this in more places? Why aren't more states actually really vigorously pursuing alternative routes to certification? And I think the answers, to some degree, uh, come down to some of the things that Michelle already said. Um, I think the first one is a concern about quality. And unfortunately, I believe that concern is, is often misplaced. Uh, in my own state of Connecticut, uh, there was a time when Connecticut was known around the country for being a national leader. Um, we had, back in the mid-'80s, we implemented long before the standards movement really took off, statewide uh, testing. Uh, and we had sort of a grand bargain. Uh, we were actually just talking about this uh, beforehand, where we raised teacher pay dramatically uh, in exchange for having a statewide testing system and the idea that we were all going to be accountable and transparent around results. Um, part of what happened in all of that was the idea that we were also going to raise the bar on who could be a teacher and that we were going to insist that um, every teacher have a college major in the subject area in which they're teaching, particularly at the secondary level. And that um, this was the people who are now responsible for enforcing this policy um, are very sincere in believing that they are the gatekeepers. They are protecting children um, by enforcing that policy. But in reality, in, in Connecticut, where we're a state of extremes between our cities and our suburbs, Hartford, Connecticut is the second poorest city in the nation um, on a per capita income basis. What we've actually done is we've created a shortage of teachers in science and math and, and uh, special education shortage area subjects, and we've expressed that shortage in the schools where those teachers are most needed because the suburbs of Connecticut can pay a little bit more, they can offer working conditions that are more attractive, and so they don't have a shortage of math and science teachers. But Bridgeport, Connecticut just hired a dozen college math majors from India to come teach in Bridgeport, Connecticut because we couldn't find in, in our state enough college math majors to teach even seventh grade math. That doesn't make any sense. Um, and you know, it particularly doesn't make sense when Teach for America is turning away in Connecticut 60 prospective candidates who chose to Connecticut as one of their top regions who are ready and willing to teach math and science and are ready and willing to pass Praxis to and demonstrate their subject area knowledge, but end up going somewhere else while we have long-term substitutes who have no subject area knowledge teaching those children. And then we wonder why um, in, in Bridgeport or Hartford, maybe 15% of high school students actually are at goal level or grade level on science and math compared with 80% in the town that's literally next door. You know, those are the things that I think we need to really focus on when we think about this, this notion of um, quality and setting up teacher certification as uh, an enforcer of quality. Uh, we need to be shifting to be thinking about effectiveness, for one thing, but we also need to just question our assumptions about what are, we, what are the unintended consequences 
of some of the policies we put in place. I think a second reason that we don't have um, more, um, more progress on this really has to do with hurt feelings. Um, that, you know, Teach for America, um, the new teacher project, have had a recruitment model that says we're going to bring the best and the brightest into classrooms where presumably we haven't had the best and the brightest, right? Because why would we need to come along and do this if, if we didn't have great people there already? And I think that's been a real challenge. Um, you know, when I was, my organization got involved in helping bring Teach for America to Connecticut. And, you know, at three in the morning, uh, at near the end of the legislative session, we, we've been fortunate to have some great legislative champions in Connecticut, but we also had some real opposition. And at about three in the morning, outside of the room where the decision makers were cloistered, uh, it was myself and um, a lobbyist who was actually representing the CEA. And, and she was saying, this is not a good idea. And I think, you know, a lot of that comes down to this idea that people are offended that um, we've said teaching is a long-term uh, career path um, and, and now there's this new way of approaching it and that, you know, maybe, maybe it's even a model where we could have teachers in a classroom for two or three years and then move on to do something else, you know. We need to get past um, that uh, whole, there's a real sort of cultural divide um, that, that's being expressed politically in ways that I think we haven't always paid attention to. Uh, and then the last reason that certainly we encountered in Connecticut is it's hurt feelings, but also hurt pocketbooks. Um, you know, the consequence of having a subject major requirement in Connecticut is that lots of people are going back to get second undergraduate degrees. They're not doing that full time, and in some cases they're doing it online, and they're basically paying for credits and, and not doing a whole lot of real cor coursework. And that's an entire economic stream that's that's affected by a change that says, you know what, you can test out of that. Um, so politically, I think we've got to examine um, those barriers. And then I guess the, the other thing I'd say is that um, this kind of a partnership between uh, an entrepreneurial uh, organization that's looking to create a new pipe, pipeline and an advocacy organization that sort of has figured out uh, state politics really is critical. And one of the reasons that maybe we haven't seen more reform at the state level is that organizations like mine are kind of just getting started. There's a new set of state-level reform organizations that are starting to get traction. Um, my organization, CONCAN, is a member of something called the Policy Innovations and in Education Network, of which the Center for American Progress is one of the four sort of founding uh, thought leaders. And there are, there are a number of reasons why we don't have more um, state-level groups, but one of them has to do with the fact that raising money for advocacy is some of the hardest money to raise. And, and I would submit to you, I've reviewed the guest list, I don't think there are any national funders in the room, but, <laughs> but, but you know, in Connecticut, we've raised all of our money, almost without exception, from folks in Connecticut. And that's possible because Connecticut is an affluent state, but it's not possible in a lot of other states. And yet, the gains that we can make uh, through advocacy at the state level are tremendous. And, um, you know, for 25, 30 million dollars a year over the next five years, each year, you could set up organizations like CONCAN, like Advance Illinois, which has just gotten going. Um, you could set them up in every state, and you could, you know, that's really a possibility. And um, in my mind, when you think about the amount of federal money that's about to go into education, ironically, state policy is going to be more important than it ever has been, because how that money gets spent is critically determined by the policies and budget decisions that are made at the state level. So. 
um, I think we have a great opportunity to uh, look at the kind of partnership that we've had. Um, we've also worked with uh, the National Council for Teacher Quality just on the ground helping them do some of their work in, in Hartford, Connecticut. And uh, state level groups can really um, be sort of local guides to national organizations. Um, and, you know, we don't have a shortage of ideas about what works here. I mean, read this report. It's right there. If we could implement those ideas across the country, if we could just wave a wand and get that done right now, we would start seeing the effects within a year or two in terms of student achievement. And, and if that's what we're focused on, then we also need to engage politically and think about the kinds of advocacy partnerships we need to make, not just in Connecticut, but uh, all around the country. Interesting themes that we'll hopefully come back to in our discussion about what does it really mean to raise the bar for teacher quality, new ways of thinking about the teaching career, and the importance of state advocacy in terms of informing state policy. Rochelle. Um, hi. I think there's a misperception about the National Education Association's uh, belief about alternative routes to certification. So I just want to clarify that, that we actually do believe that there should be multiple pathways um, to, for entry into our nation's classroom. We recognize that career switchers and individuals who possess deep content knowledge actually should have routes to enter the classroom should they not um, go the traditional route, which is the four-year preparation route. We recognize that if they decide to become interested in the profession later in their careers, they should have the opportunity to pursue a degree in education. But we also recognize that um, there are some quality standards that have to be in place. You know, currently there are a variety of educational alternative routes to certi certification that exist across the country that have been approved by departments of education, they've been approved by state legislatures, they've been approved by licensure boards. And they're programs that exist for a variety of people. They, we have programs for career changers, military retirees, undergraduates who want short-term commitments, and those who want to take a test and teach immediately. Um, we advocate for rigorous um, entry routes to licensure because the ultimate goal for all prospective teachers, regardless of their route to entry, is to obtain a license to teach. So at the end of the day, regardless of how they were prepared, every candidate wants a license to teach. We believe that alternate routes to licensure should offer a range of pre-K-12 major areas in their programs. But we also know that if you want to get in to a state, you, some programs develop a niche. So if there's a shortage in math and science teachers, they say, well, okay, this will be the easiest route for me to get in, so I'm going to specialize and I'm only going to prepare math and science teachers, or I'm going to look at special education programs. But it's not that we think that they should be limited, it's just that we know, we realize that programs do that, but if you're really looking at creating an alternative route to licensure, we don't think there should be a limitation because if you're looking at career switchers and people that have deep content knowledge, we want individuals across the spectrum to be able to pursue these education opportunities. We also know that a quality workforce represents the diversity of its students and society. And research has shown that alternative route licensure programs have done a really good job at approaching diverse students and getting them to seek degrees and um, getting them to pursue this licensure route. More minorities and males definitely have pursued alternative routes to licensure. And that said, we know that there's growing evidence in both Tennessee and in North Carolina that diversity matters in student achievement. But the CAP report rep recommends, the one that Michelle and Robin have put together, recommends that um, you look at student test scores, not student test scores, candidate test scores, and consider maybe adjusting the bar. 
And so we know that if you adjust the bar, there's a possibility that you will then weed out some of the minority candidates because research has shown that when you adjust the bar, increase the scores, that some of the candidates that are of color will also be, um, will not, will no longer be in your group of diverse candidates. So that said, I would encourage everyone to take a look at the DeWitt Wallace research that was done around the paraprofessionals to teachers program that actually encourages people to widen your gap for entry, but then narrow the gap for exit. And so you allow a more diverse student population to enter the program, and then you build up the skill set of the students while they're in the program so that when they exit, they are the type of candidates and can pass the test and meet the same requirements as everyone. Um, the authors of the paper also call for a specific license for individuals who are going through alternative route programs. And actually, I think that we think that this is a necessary step for the licensure program if everyone that completes the program is going to be the teacher of record. Because as the teacher of record, when you complete the program, you're responsible for the classroom management, you're responsible for the instruction, the assessment, and everything else that's around <coughs> that is included in the learning environment as the classroom teacher. So that said, if you are saying that here's our candidate, they've gone through our six-week program, they've gone through our eight-week program, they've gone through our 12-week program, they are now eligible to be the teacher of record, then it really doesn't make sense to create a special license for someone that's coming through this route because as the teacher of record, they have the same license that an individual has who has gone through a traditional route, um, a traditional certification route program. Um, now, if the alternative route special license would be for someone who is going through what we call the um, what do they call teacher residency program that would be different because then that individual would get a special certificate and then they would have the opportunity to spend time under a expert teacher of record spending the year learning how to teach spending the year taking additional coursework also spending that time working with students and building up their skill set so at that point in time they would then become the teacher of record the following year and they actually would go into the classroom with the skills and knowledge that they need and feel that they are successful and then have the same certificate at that point. So the question is, what would this new certificate look like and why is it needed and if that is indeed the case to support urban residencies and to extend the learning opportunities for people who are in alternative route programs and to make sure that they are the, become the teacher of record when they are capable of managing assessment, instruction, and student learning, then that would be a wonderful thing to do and I think that is something we should support and lobby for um, at the state level. Additionally, um, Teach for America is a great recruitment model. They have done a fabulous job at recruiting students into the profession who might not have thought about entering teaching. The reality is they have, um, Michelle, what are they called? The campus recruiters? Uh, recruitment directors. The recruitment directors are great. They go to the campus, they target the best students on campus, the brightest students on campus, the students who are most active. They go after them, they know who they are, they've got a list of um, individuals. I mean, they go after the best, they, what, we, what, is, what are called in the general um, public is the best and the brightest because they want these kids to come into the classroom and teach for two years. But here's the thing we need to think about. Teach for America had a vision statement at one time that said, one day all children will have the opportunity to attain an excellent education. And if that's the case and we're really committed to that, we can't let our, pro our profession be defined by recruitment programs. The reality is a recruitment program is great, it gets them there, but we actually want a profession where people stay in the profession and actually work with students, increase student achievement, and are not increasing what we call the returning, revolving door of education. 
So if the goal is to recruit an individual to the profession, Teacher America is a great model. If we are looking at um, retaining teachers, um, their co-partner, um, the New Teacher Project, is a model that I recommend that we look at. Um, not so much for um, its recruitment, because Teacher America also follows their students into classes. I see some people thinking, well, Teacher America is stronger because they put mentors in the classroom, and the New Teacher Project doesn't do that. No, they don't. But there are things that we can learn from both models that would actually um, actually help us create an ideal program because the new teacher project seeks career changers and career switchers and people that are interested in being career teachers whereas so we could use the teacher america model to actually recruit the teachers and then um, take some training components from teacher america and then weave that into what the new teacher project does combine that with what we see as an urban residency program and ask for the states to support fund and finance things of that nature finally Teaching should not be a profession where it's continually in revolution. Um, if we're committed to bringing teachers to the profession, we really need to think about induction. Um, we all know that strong, well, I can't say we all know. Research has shown. I assume we all know because it's an education um, session and panel. But research has shown that um, induction really makes a difference, and strong induction matters most. Um, and so there are some serious components of induction that have been shown to actually impact teacher re uh, retention. And so that said, I think that we should seriously consider um, working with state legislatures and seeking um, legislation that funds teacher um, induction programs over for at least a minimum of two years where they work with um, expert teachers who have been trained and that's important the training of mentors is very critical in addition to just randomly assigning a teacher to someone who is in their school or down the hall or who's really nice but we want that um, sufficient training for those individuals as well and then I did say finally before but this is really <laughs> finally um, if we're if we're really serious about creating profession we have to think about teaching as profession and when we start talking about deregulating the licensure standards and changing the way in which we let individuals into the profession and um, in what we call the profession, we really need to think about why is it we want to deregulate licensure standards? Is anyone talking about deregulating medical school standards? Is anyone talking about deregulating lawyer standards? Is anyone talking about rolling back the clock and changing what things look like for other professions? And why is it that we're always talking about, well, you know, it's the teaching profession. We can't get quality teachers to go teach in these locations and those locations. But if the issue is not the instruction that's occurring, but it's actually the location, then we really need to focus on the real issue. And if the issue is not the, the standards and it's not the quality of instruction, and the real issue is poor working conditions, or if it's lack of administrative support, or if it's respect, or professional recognition, whatever the real issue is, we need to start addressing those issues. Because if we change the licensure standards, but it, we don't do anything about those other conditions. We're just changing one frame in the revolving door, but we're not really addressing the full door. So you change the frame, you allow additional Teacher for America teachers to come in, they're in, they're out, they're in, they're out, they're in, they're out, and I do recognize that some stay, and I'm not just focusing on Teach for America, but Teach for America was highlighted in the report as an example of a model program. Um, and so they're in, they're out, they're in, they're out. So you change a part of the frame, but the door continues to revolve. And so that's it. Thank you.
Thanks, Rochelle, and thanks for bringing up the important issue of teacher retention and providing support and induction and mentoring support. Now we'll hear from Scott, who has an on-the-ground perspective on all these issues. Okay. Hi. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. I've really been struggling with a cold this week, which you can hear, so I'm going to do my best to be heard. Um, thanks. Well, I, um, I got my start in teaching in uh, 1992 uh, through Teach for America, actually. I was a, a philosophy and religion major. Uh, in college, which, um, you know, I found that training very useful. Philosophy and religion has kept me grounded. Um, doesn't do much for uh, job prospects, however. Um, and so the first thing I kind of wanted to, to comment on, um, and it kind of comes up well with uh, the points that uh, Rochelle was just making. Um, I, I started in Baltimore and I taught for two years, and, and then I actually left. I went and worked for Teach for America. and. Um, then moved out to California where I taught uh, at Compton, uh, California for two years, Los Angeles Unified for two years, moved back to D.C. where I taught here in D.C. and then uh, became an administrator. Um, and, you know, that's just sort of my own personal life story and it's just one, uh, you know, life story. But it, it does point to some of these statistics and issues about, you know, do Teach for America people stay or what is the impact? Um, I remember way back in 1992, even Wendy Kopp, uh, and at this point in time, Teach for America had been in existence for, uh, I think that was the third, third core, 1990 was the first. Um, Wendy Kopp already was talking about her vision for alumni radically changing, uh, you know, American education. And I really, I didn't get it at the time, but in many ways, uh, you know, uh, Wendy Kopp has, her vision was, um, pretty incredible and as I've gone around to these different places and you see places where there's been alternate routes to, to education in effect for a while, you see the impact that alumni are having. Here in DC, it's amazing how many principal school leaders are uh, TFA alumni or now even DC Teaching Fellow alumni uh, doing some really incredible things. Um, you know, obviously our chancellor is one example. Um, the work that the new teacher project's been doing here for DC Teaching Fellows, the KIPP schools, obviously. I mean, there you go, you know, not only with some school leaders, but now they have a whole, you know, I don't know how many schools they're up to now, but you look at that impact sort of growing and booming. So, um, you know, this isn't just Teach for America and other alternate route programs shouldn't just be seen as recruitment programs. Once folks are in education, and many people use alternate route programs uh, to get into education, uh, to stay. They're not all just coming for two years. Um, I'm, again, I have lots of friends of mine who, you know, we, we went through Teach for America to stay in education, not just to do uh, two years. Um, and obviously there's no grad school or there's no, um, there's no school of thought where um, you can guarantee that people, particularly if they're working in a challenging urban or rural environment, everybody has issues with retention in those environments. They're very difficult environments to teach into. There's not a single, you know, ed school that, that can guarantee that folks will stay, um, you know, sometimes past the first month because the, the situations that folks are walking into are, are really just that hard. Um, so recently what I've been doing, um, I've been a principal here in D.C. for this is my fifth year now, um, and I've been the, the principal in a, a really incredible school uh, for those who know D.C. and in uh, Upper Northwest, Washington, D.C., a very sort of more affluent community, very high achieving school, a wonderful school community, very supportive, nurturing environment, great place to work, great place to be. Very different from my teaching career, which was, you know, in Title I schools in uh, neighborhoods where poverty is an issue. Um, 
And one of the things that made uh, that school that I was at such a, a, a great place is that there was like this consistency with the faculty. Folks really wanted to be there. They came, they stayed over time. And about this time of year, I would be just inundated with resumes. I mean, they would be coming in two, three on a, you know, two to three a day, email, fax, people dropping in off the street. Uh, you know, I'd just start a folder every spring and I'd have 50, 60 resumes, uh, you know, after no time. Um, it's very easy uh, to recruit and hire the best teachers um, because the pool was always so deep. Well, last year, um, it, I, you know, I, I talked to uh, our chancellor, Michelle Ree, about leaving uh, that school and taking on a new project. And I asked to go to a school that needed to be restructured through No Child Left Behind. So um, I became the principal at Webb Wheatley, where I am now. Um, and it's a school that was persistently failing. It's a neighborhood where uh, poverty and violence are real issues. Uh, again, for those who may not know, DC, it's in the Trinidad neighborhood where, um, unfortunately, last summer there was a real spate of violence and police had set up checkpoints to get into the neighborhood. Um, I mean, there's just some real issues going on there. And because it had never made AYP, uh, part of the restructuring plan was that I was going to reconstitute the staff. And I was really looking for that kind of control. If you really want to change the environment, you need to have the leverage to get you know, the, the teachers that you really want to have there in the door. And so I went and I interviewed the staff that was there currently uh, and really, like any school in any, any place, found some really great teachers, which, of course, I held on to those folks for dear life. Um, but I let a, a large percentage of the, of the staff go. And the reality was that I didn't even interview, like, a full complement of people because already in that environment there was... I'm not sure the actual number. It was like four to six classrooms were currently being staffed by uh, long-term subs because people had either quit or were out on disability or were out for corporal punishment charges or, or whatever. So the reality is this is a place where teacher shortage was a real issue. And I'm not talking about the areas like math and science. I'm talking general elementary education, which is not widely perceived as a shortage area. At this school, you know, in this neighborhood, there were real shortages already. Um, so the other piece of context, in D.C. last year, uh, as a school system, we closed uh, 23 schools due to uh, dwindling enrollment over time. And so as a principal who had to hire, um, I think it was about 27 new teachers, right? That was my job last summer to get 27 new teachers. There was this huge pool of teachers uh, from schools that had closed that needed to find jobs. Right? So I was going to career fairs all the time. And right away, again, like you'd expect, I found some really amazing veteran teachers, folks who really wanted to come and work in a really challenging environment, were eager to turn around this low-performing school and build it towards being a high-performing school. People had all the right skills, all the right expertise. And of course, you know, so I'm like latching onto folks right and left. But as the summer wore on, um, it got harder and harder to find those folks from the from the pool of people that had been let go from these other schools. I was offering up lots of jobs to people who I liked, but frankly, they did not want to come and work uh, and do the type of work that I needed them to do. Uh, the school had a very bad reputation. They did not like the violence in the neighborhood. They did not want to come be part of such hard work. So I got turned down a lot by people who, again, mind you, these folks needed jobs. They were currently employed. They weren't, they, you know, I was like, how can you say no? Like, you absolutely need this job. They, it did not matter. They did not want to come and work there. So uh, my last nine hires uh, were all actually ended up being 
Teach for America and DC Teaching folks. So I have a total of 11 new teachers on staff. Nine of them are from alternate route programs. And that's, you know, that's like this, the, the real piece that's here is that there are um, school environments that, uh, it, you know, it doesn't matter what the ed program is or, or whatever. It's really hard to prepare people to go into some of the environments that we have and do the kind of work that needs to get done. Not only is it hard to prepare people for that, it's hard to find people who are willing. And that's what I found through DC Teaching Fellows and the uh, DC uh, and Teach for America was these were folks who, you know, the more I described to them what I needed them to do, the more eager they were because they wanted to have that kind of impact um, on a school. They wanted to be part of this really hard work. They wanted to be part of turning around the, the, the chances for uh, our kids uh, within this school. Um, and that willingness is, you know, you can't put a price on that. Um, obviously, with that many new teachers, I have a huge, um, you know, job in terms of giving them the capacity with the instructional skills that they need uh, and the support. And obviously, my goal is to have folks that want to stay uh, for years um, because, you know, Rochelle was right. That consistency is important. You want to have that kind of stability and you want to have that consistency. Um, so that's, you know, that's my job to do. There's not a principal in the world who... Um, you know, uh, is it, who accepts that any teacher, regardless of the route they came, comes with all the skills and expertise they need. That job-embedded professional development, that chance to work together as a staff, is huge for any teacher, regardless of how long they've been teaching for. Uh, and sometimes it's better to take people who, um, you know, there's not a whole lot of unlearning, you know, that blank canvas, that fresh clay. Sometimes as principals, we love that stuff. Um, you don't have to undo, you know, things that you've learned over time. Um, and so that's true for, that's true for any, um, you know, any school, uh, anywhere. Um, so that's kind of been my experience with this, uh, restructuring process is it's been really great to have, uh, an, an ability to get people into education who are so eager to do really hard, difficult work with kids who really want to make that commitment. And we, we, um, you know, we have a lot of growing to do as a school. Things don't change, uh, overnight. Um, you know, this is our first year through this turnaround project, um, but really quickly within the first month or two, you can start to see uh, those changes happening with the climate of the school, the expectations that were there, and folks who have come and visited um, have seen the difference that's taken place, and I couldn't um, be seeing those kind of results without really strong alt-root programs like uh, Teach for America and DC Teaching Fellows being there part of the process. There's a lot of criticism of some alternate route programs because of the high turnover, but it seems that from your experience, you had a hard time getting good people who are just willing to come. And what would you have done if, if Teach for America or the New Teacher Project didn't exist? Oh, that's too scary. I can't <laughs> answer that quick. Um, I mean, so the, the reality is, is if, um, you know, the school system would have placed into, if I hadn't found people that I wanted, the school system at the end of the day, because of contractual requirements, would have put teachers uh, into those slots, whether I wanted them there or not. And again, this idea that, I mean, within DCPS, um, which is a big school system, there's some amazing, incredible teachers, but then there's also some folks, unfortunately, who, um, whether it's they've lost the spark to teach or uh, they're not right up, quite up to the job. Or again, there's real differences in schools. It's a very different proposition to go teach at a high-performing school like Janney, my last school, versus working at Webb Wheatley. And there's some folks who are great in one environment, but not necessarily for another. So again, to have a principal have that opportunity to pick the person who's going to fit in that environment uh, 
says a lot. Great. Do any of the panelists want to respond to something else that another panelist has said? Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Michelle and then Alex? Um, well, I just I felt like I had to sort of step up a little on the uh, we're just a recruitment program because we actually have invested over time quite a bit of resources into uh, the ongoing training and support of our core members. And I will be p totally upfront and say this did not exist in the early days, and a lot of people do have this like 1990, 92-ish version of Teach for America, but we're, we're different now. And I would say, you know, over time we've learned how important it is to provide that ongoing support. And we do have mentors assigned to all of our core members who are required to observe them at least four times a year and use a teaching rubric to provide feedback to, to core members and really guide their practice so that they're, you know, most of the kids that they're working with are very far behind and so to gear them towards moving them at least a grade level if not more of student growth over the course of the year. And then we also have ways of creating the kinds of job embedded uh, professional development that we were we discussed earlier and also assigning, um, you know, kind of matching people up by their subject matter and grade levels across a district so that they can learn from each other. So I felt like I have to sort of say that because I think we are more than a recruitment program. <laughs> Teach for America, let me just clarify. I was not saying that they don't support their teachers um, when they go into the classroom. They do support their teachers, but they support them for the two-year commitment. And so I hate to say if I misrepresented them, because I actually had an opportunity to witness the training this summer and really enjoyed what I saw them doing in the setting and the training. But I also uh, refer to them as a recruitment program because in the teaching profession, we do try to get our teachers to come into the profession and see it as a career and stay for longer than two years. But acknowledging that the research says that 50% leave in five years. And so with that, um, with the research out there and knowing that there's already a revolving door in motion, to then have additional programs come on board and um, promote short-term commitments, I think that's where the recruitment philosophy comes from. Not that you don't have um, adequate support and training for the directors, because we that actual, the training model that you have for the directors is really good, and the fact that they follow them into the classroom and they receive the training that your directors provide them, um, as well as the school district training, actually is a very good model. And it'd be wonderful if we could get state legislation and money to support training like that for all people across the country. I think that's actually an interesting point because that's where some of the hurt feelings come in a little bit here in that um, Teach for America raises a lot of money so that it can support its uh, teachers. And you know, I spend time talking to uh, the dean of the state's largest teacher uh, college in Connecticut and he is desperate um, to do something for his folks who go out in the workforce, many of whom end up teaching in Connecticut's urban communities and then leave halfway through the first year after they've spent four, in some cases, five years training to be a teacher. And it's, it just pains him so deeply, but he is really feeling, as a state university, uh, highly constrained. He doesn't have the resource to create the kind of support. I mean, and really what TFA does is it creates, you know, the, the professional learning community around its teachers, even when they're in buildings where that doesn't exist. And that's part of, I think, you know, and TFA has its own struggles. I mean, not every single teacher stays for two years, but, um, that's, I think, a, it, that is a good model for us to be thinking about. But I, but I think, you know, we should not necessarily um, assume that the revolving door is entirely negative in, in this sense, that I think in, in a number of schools that I've seen, 
um, and we sort the data on student achievement across the whole state of Connecticut and then identify high-performing, high-poverty schools, there is actually a very interesting model that's starting to emerge where you have a stable core of maybe 65, 70 percent of the teaching staff that's there as long-term career professionals. But those schools actually get a tremendous amount of energy from having people come in for a two to three year tour, provided that they've been recruited and selected and trained and supported while they're there in an, in an extremely intense manner. That the energy that those folks who actually have no problem staying at a school for 12 hours and being on the phone with a kid working on homework at 10 o'clock at night. There's, there is actually a life transition that occurs You know, when people start having kids and th that's a good thing, but it means that um, maybe it is actually not a bad thing to have people in their young 20s working their butts off uh, when that's a good, you know, that's a time in their life when they can do that. And that provided they have um, a structure to plug into uh, and they're not coming just into a dysfunctional school environment and left to fend for themselves, that's actually a model we might think about, particularly in schools like yours where there just aren't enough people who can sign up for the, what the full tour of duty really entails. Well, you know, you mentioned uh, hurt pocketbooks. And so when we know that we have limited resources, we really have to think about the best way to use our resources. And so one of the things, and I'm not sure if I, mentioned, I may have said this, but one of the things we know is that when there is a revolving door and there's constant teacher churn, um, the impact also is the loss in um, money that is put into the training of that teacher, not at the on the preparation side, but then the training that goes on once they hit the district door, the school district door, and they receive the professional development that the school district offers. They all the money is poured, in, or the finances support that's poured into them, as they are be beginning teachers, learning the craft of teaching, learning the re the resources that they receive from the district, that that they, how the, the learning the of assessment that the district gives. So it's one thing to go through a teacher prep program because that does provide you with the general prep. But then once you hit the district door, you are, for lack of a better word, you are part of the district team and you then have to, you, you narrow your focus and you learn what that district team is about. You learn their standard, you learn the state standards, you learn uh, the district requirements. And so you then hone in your focus and it that's money that's spent on training, job embedded professional development and things of that nature. So when that individual comes in, the district's making an investment in that individual. When that individual walks out, that's lost money. And so like the NICTAF study proved and they have the calculator on their website that basically adds up the amount of money that's spent on teacher churn. So if we have a limited amount of resources, which I, is, is unbelievable when it talks about, when we're talking about training the next generation of students and future leaders, but since we have a limited amount of pot of money, um, the pot's limited, we need to figure out what's the best way to use the money that's there. I think we need to focus on stopping churn, using the resources in the best manner possible. And so if we know that we're bringing in some students that aren't going to stay, that aren't interested in the profession, that aren't interested in changing lives or shaping students' futures, then maybe that might not be the best use of resources to pour them into students that are only going to be there temporarily. Rethinking the career trajectory and rethinking how training should be designed. If teachers are only going to stay for a few years, what does that mean for teacher oh, training? I, I tell you, I mean, we do have. Well, first, we need to think. We need to think about the teaching profession as a, a thirty-year career because we know the reality is that people are not staying in any profession for thirty years anymore. And so, but that said, um, does that mean that we promote teaching as a two-year profession? 
a two-year commitment, something that you do, a three-year commitment, you know? Do we promote the fact that 50% leave in five years, or do we talk about the 50% that also stay? I think we do both. I mean, the, the value proposition is, you know, that, that Teach for America and other um, sort of elite recruiting uh, efforts have, you know, is that one thing, they're raising private money. I mean, in Connecticut, there's $4 million a year that's going into TFA that's would not, that's resource that wouldn't be going into teacher training otherwise. And we can certainly uh, discuss other uses of philanthropy in this arena, but, but, but I do think that it's not, um, you know, and then the other thing is that um, we have sort of, let's say you have 60, 70 percent of those folks end up leaving after two or three years. There's still a, a core that stay, and that group then disproportionately becomes school leaders. I mean, we have an example right here. We're seeing that happen in Connecticut. Um, and actually, you know, our um, research manager is a TFA alum, you know, working in an advocacy organization. There's so many other ways that people stay in the mix. So, I mean, in my mind, I, I, I'm very sensitive to the notion that we have some schools that are struggling deeply with incredibly high teacher turnover. And we, we have to, if we're serious about raising achievement for kids in those schools, we've got to stop the kind of terrible loss of teaching uh, talent that's happening there. But I actually believe part of the solution is saying we are planning to have 25% um, of that teaching staff be there for three years at a time. And we can set that up in a way where it actually really works for kids and it works for everyone else too. And so at what point do we accept or do we address the point that it's not acceptable that it's okay for this school to turn over because of the working conditions, but this school over here would never turn over because those working conditions are, they would never accept those kind of working conditions. So at Scott, what point? Did sorry. you wanna, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> so Scott, that. like you said, okay, you <laughs> like came from Janie, the turnover wasn't there at Janie, okay? <laughs> like the turnover at Webb, at Webb Wheatley. So at what point, what are the differences at Webb Wheatley versus uh, Janie? And so at what point do we say, what we accepted Webb Wheatley, or what we should not accept at Webb Wheatley, what Janie would not accept. And so, and that's within the same district, okay? So for example, why is churn okay at Webb Wheatley, but churn's not acceptable at Janie? And why is it okay for TFA to bring in, or for you to bring in a nine, and this is not, because TFA has some very bright students. I talked with some very smart people this summer. Some of them I know are going to stay in the profession because they actually use TFA as the route to avoid traditional teacher preparation, but that's a conversation for another day. Um, I just, because I, that was bothersome, but um, at what point do you say, okay, this is not acceptable, and when are we going to address the working conditions? Why is it that my resources here are not like my resources were at Janie? At what point do you say, we can't accept this at any school? I, I don't think anybody's, I mean, I don't think anybody's saying that. No one's gonna say it, because well, it's not the right thing to no, say. I don't well, let's actually, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't think that's there. even yeah. the right question. I mean, uh, people leave, you know, I, you know, I'm not the policy wonk. From what I know is that people leave when they feel like they're not being effective and supportive. And that's not a TFA thing, that's a teacher thing, right? Exactly. So when you're creating the type of working environment where people are feeling like they're being effective, then they stay. So there was incredible churn at Webb Wheatley just within last school year. It was not being led by someone who was particularly favorable to Alt Roots. There was only two Alt Root teachers uh, there. The people who were leaving were people who came through, I'm assuming because I don't even know them that well, traditional programs. If, when you have school environments where things are not set up for teachers to be successful, 
teachers don't want to stay. Every teacher gets into the profession because they want to help kids. And when you have places where it's really difficult to feel like you are helping kids, then they're not going to stay. So you obviously want to create environments where people feel like their effort is paying, paying fruit. I mean, clearly, I, I am uh, in a position right now in the first year of a turnaround effort where I hired 11 first-year teachers, nine through alternate route programs. Obviously, uh, I'm hoping that most of those folks will, will stay beyond uh, you know, a two-year commitment they made to be part of this program. My job as a building leader to make sure that they're feeling supportive and effective and that they're willing to do that. Um, you know, I have a teacher who's not coming back next year who's not from an alternate route program. She's a person from a traditional track, and she just said, you know what, I've loved working with you this year, but it's, it's too hard. It's just a very difficult job. So it's not about saying it's acceptable churn or not acceptable churn. It's just that's the reality. Um, and then when you have schools where, um, you know, things are stable and it's easier to be effective, you're just naturally going to have less uh, turnover. And frankly, many the part of the reason why there is churn, again, alternate route or not, is often people are looking to go to schools where they feel like they are, you know, being supported, being successful, where it, it's an easier position to be at. And so you even have a uh, loss of folks from some high, high need schools to high performing schools in the same district just because people want to get to the point where they can see themselves staying for 30 years at that location at that time. Just pursue this issue of, of equity for a moment here because I think actually there's a logical extension of this that, that um, is pretty interesting, which is if we do recognize that uh, schools which have a high level of churn are going to have on average less experienced teachers, mm -hmm. that's a problem in itself. Um, but I think the extension of that, there's some really interesting work that folks at EdTrust are doing and Paul Hill at the Center for Reinventing Public Education around student-based budgeting and actually using actual teacher salaries rather than average teacher salaries to drive a district-wide funding formula. And what that would do, in Scott's case, for instance, is you've got a younger teaching staff just by definition of having a hard-to-recruit situation and, and taking advantage of alternative routes. Why shouldn't you get some extra resources that are equalized on the, because that other school you were at before is spending more money on a per-pupil basis because the teacher salaries are a lot higher? So why shouldn't we equalize that? Not by necessarily shifting those teachers who don't want to be where you are, but shifting resources so that you can do additional things that actually drive student achievement in a very direct way for the way that you've structured your school. I mean, that would be a way mm -hmm. that I would I would pursue um, mm -hmm. what, what you raised. Right. So how do you give schools the ability to attract the teachers that they need? Well, so the principal <laughs> answer that was... <laughs> Read the question. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, how, how do you give yeah. schools the ability to track the teachers that they need? How, what kinds of conditions do you need to create? So, I mean, again, I'm going to go answer that question in a different way. Just by its very nature, when 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 principals do have the ability to to hire who they want or not, the market inevitably is going to end up um, getting the right teachers in the right places. And the reality, again, like, so we have to go back. We have to keep going back to reality here. There's a reason why. Uh, Teach for America, DC Teaching Fellows, and programs like this exist because there's a demand from the principal perspective for these folks. And everybody has a different view, view on that. Some people are more comfortable than others. Um, but principals want the very best teachers in their school. And frankly, we do not care. I do not care 
what route they came from. So you look at their skills, you look at their overall package. Are they smart? Are they reflective? What have their experiences be? Uh, what have what have they been? How hard are they willing to work? Will they understand and be able to relate to the kids? I mean, all those things that a principal looks at um, in, in terms of teachers, folks come in all kinds of shapes and sizes and experiences and beliefs, and a principal is going to pick the person that they think is the best match for their school, for their kids at that moment in time. And, you know, there's a huge demand out there for people from alt-root programs because principals believe that they're good teachers. Thank you. Okay, we're going to open it to the audience for questions. Please be concise so we can get in as many questions as possible. And I'd like to start with the press. Any questions from the press? Any press that are here? Hi, my name is Leanna Hyten. I'm here with Education Week. Um, I guess this question is for Michelle. Um, the report says that one of the benefits of um, alternative education programs is that there's an increased supply of teachers for high-need subjects. Um, yet high-need subjects such as special education and ELL instruction, they require unique pedagogy, not just content knowledge. So do you think that accelerated programs like Teach for America and the New Teacher Project um, this, with their fast-track training can really adequately um, prepare teachers for these high-needs positions? And how can they offer enough specific training in such a short amount of time? Thanks for the question. Um, so this is where I'd like to point to, I think that Teach America is an organization of continuing improvement. And that we build in feedback loops that we know what we maybe are not doing well. And over time, we have realized that we need to customize for certain areas, special ed education being one of them. And so we've built into our uh, institute that takes place the summer before they teach a customized tract for special ed that then continues for folks as they go through their two years in that uh, teaching placement. I would say too, just on special ed, we, um, I always get this backwards, we don't place generally with low incidence kids, right? So it's pretty rare that a Teach for America core member would work with like a child with autism or it's more likely that they might work with, you know, kids with learning disabilities in part because of inclusion. but. We have customized, we also now place at the early childhood level, and we have a customized track for that. So I do think that you can be effective as an alternate route program, whether you're Teach for America or another program, if you get the feedback from your participants and realize, like, oh, we're not giving you enough support in X area, and, and develop your program based on those needs. Hi, my name is Li Yang. One of the drawbacks that I think this alternative certification, although you can put some good talented person in a short time, two years, school, three years of training, but the problem is this kind of training, just like in any other employment opportunities, you know, you just can have an arbitrary selection or by some kind of recommendation letters. And especially, you consider some school that can be closed, not because there are no demand for those school locations, but there are just some administrative or political problem. And in some area, especially like DC or urban area, the school are deteriorated. And teacher, although at the beginning they are very ambitious to have some kind of educator, that kind of ambition, but if they see all those administrators and politicians doing and located their money and budget, it's very disappointing. 
So what I mean, I really think is we really have to go some kind of traditional route and pick up very ambitious, very young talented from the beginning and have a long-term commitment, and they will not be diverted by the fundraising. What is the question, please? My question is, how are we going to determine the alternative certification is better than traditional? And if you are just based on principle and judgment to develop a good educational professionals? I don't think it's an issue of determining whether or not alternative route um, licensure is better or worse than traditional route certification. Um, I think the issue is what route works best for you in your situation. Because at the end of the day, everyone is going to end up with the same license to teach. And so the question is, is the route that you're going through going to prepare you with the skills that you need to be the most effective teacher in the classroom that you find yourself, in which you find yourself? Little difference between routes in terms of teacher effectiveness. There is a great variability in teacher effectiveness within a route, but not between alternative and traditional routes. In the back. Jay Bonstingle, Center for Schools of Quality, Columbia, Maryland. Um, would you would you address the flip side of the retention issue? Um, having taught myself 17 years before going into what I do now with schools around the country and helping them to see how quality can be infused into their cultures um, and made made better thereby. Um, I I would like to see may I suggest uh, a kind of, n another kind of organization may be called Leave Teaching for America uh, for those teachers who uh, have been burned out for years and who, who cannot perhaps be resuscitated, whose spark has left for good. What, what could we do to help teachers who see every fall this one more onslaught of students as, as being more of a curse than a blessing, is it possible to give them a career path or some alternatives that would lead to another career path so that if they did come back into the classroom, they, knew, they, they would know that they had an alternative, and if they leave, they'd, they'd, they'd be happier than they are in the class? Well, <laughs> there, the, uh, you may have seen a few years <laughs> back when there was a reward placed for teachers to leave the profession. I, that is not the, uh, the, the approach that's needed here. I think what, what I've seen um, in, in Connecticut is that when a district starts a comprehensive reform plan, um, there is an opportunity to counsel out, um, and, and this is actually something that I think um, teachers unions themselves um, often get involved with if, if they're, and you can certainly speak to this better than I, but it's certainly from conversations that I've had. If there are fewer seats that are going to be left after a restructuring process, there's an opportunity to avoid um, layoffs by figuring out who wants to leave and who wants to stay. And, and that if, if the district approaches that in a creative way, um, you can really create some win-wins there where maybe it's a win-win-win where the third party is actually uh, kids uh, who are benefiting from, from better instruction. I'm going to jump in here, too. So um, as I went through this restructuring process um, and I got to interview the staff um, of the school to see who was staying and who wasn't, 
one of the people I interviewed who I held on to uh, is the most seasoned veteran teacher in the school. And I, and I always want to make sure that people hear that, you know, veteran teachers get a bad rap. Uh, Miss Marshall, and if she's listening or if she watches this on cable, I've got her on. I need five more years out of Miss Marshall. Um, I don't know her age and wouldn't say it, but uh, it's, she's not young. Um, but she and she works with Head Start kids, and she's full of life. She's been part of the community forever, and she's amazing. Um, but the point is a good one in that once you're, you don't have that spark anymore, there needs to be a way to gracefully exit someone out of the process. And obviously, as a building principal, uh, there are some powers that I have. There's a lot of debate, obviously, particularly here in D.C., about those, those powers. And there needs to be some fair process, processes in place that ultimately work best for kids. So principals need to be clear um, and need to be held accountable for the decisions they make. But at the same time, it shouldn't be... Uh, quite as difficult sometimes as it is to remove from classrooms teachers who aren't working in the best interest of kids and there's got to be some fair processes around that but that comes in all shapes and sizes it's not veteran educators versus young educators there are folks who who just don't have the best interest of kids at heart and it's it's hard to un, you know it's hard to undo that once they're um, in your school building and they're working there so Additionally, there's research and um, locals and affiliates around the country have been experimenting with peer assistance models and peer assistance and review models, both of which are designed to help both new teachers and veteran teachers who find themselves in struggling um, situations and to provide assistance first to support them and help improve their um, practice. And then if the um, practice, depending on whether or not it's a peer assistance model versus peer assistance in review, um, if the review component is indeed in place, then those models do um, include a counseling out um, component in some situations. But I do encourage you to look into the research in that area. But also with that suggestion, there might we also have a, um, uh, maybe we should look at uh, organizations that also uh, work with principals that aren't supportive of their teachers and different support factors that need to be in place. Not um, Scott here, but we recognize <laughs> that there are other factors that cause teachers to leave the profession and or burn out on the job. And so we need to recognize that those factors need to be addressed and that, you know, while we want to spend money on lots of different things, we need to think about how we are really using our professional development mo monies and supporting teachers. Not you, Scott, you're going to start. Hi, my name is Lisa LaBelle. I'm a teacher in Arlington County. And I was just um, wondering if you could address the issue of what kind of preparation schools and school systems go through in order to have some of the, the teachers who are coming in through alternative programs. I went through a Peace Corps Fellows program, and I won't name where, but um, as part of our program, we were supposed to train and then work in an underserved community. And we wanted to um, train, we wanted to go in DC public schools. And um, we were not allowed to because they were so far out of compliance with special education law that they really felt that our training would not be adequate. And so this whole school system was not served by this fellows program. So what kind of work needs to be done in the schools in order to um, have some of the students from these alternative programs? Um, so one thing I, I should put out there is that I think, um, you know, our overall, what drives Teach for America are people who are involved with with Teach for America is, you know, ad addressing ed educational inequity. And so I think that 
while a lot of alt route programs are set up originally to serve shortage areas, I don't think that's really, I mean, if you embrace the pathway of alternate routes, you should really be able to place people in all grades and subject areas. So that's just one thing I want to put out there. And also our placements in special ed are actually, I mean, we only place about 10% of our folks in special ed. But um, so I think that, um, you know, districts have their own challenges, but I do think that they should be looking to partner with high quality alt route programs where they can. And a program like, I mean, I, want, I don't want to make this all about Teacher America by any stretch of the imagination, but they should look for partners who can provide teachers who will get some ongoing support if they don't have the systems in place to do that. I mean, ideally, the district has a really robust, as Rochelle was saying earlier, um, mentoring program in place um, and provides the kind of professional development that new teachers need. But if they don't have, for whatever reasons, whether it be financial considerations or others, if they don't have that, they should look for partners that can bring that to the table. And that's part of what our program does, and I think others do as well. Blue shirt in front here. Ari Altman, I'm at uh, Wilkie Farr and Gallagher now in DC. I spent three years as a teacher in New York City, and I was certified. I was certified actually in three states through three different processes, both the state certification, the te uh, praxis test, and re reciprocity. And w one of the things that I felt, and this is partly to Alex and partly Rochelle, when I left after three years, I felt perhaps I was more part of the problem than part of the solution. Of course, I had gone in wanting to be a teacher, uh, considering it as a career. And after I left, I thought, well, I'm just like Teach for America. No, you know, no insult to you, but I thought, well, I'm a little different. I, I want to do this for a, as a long-term commitment. But in the end, I didn't have the energy to do that. And one of the things I thought was, well, maybe Teach for America is the solution. And maybe I am part of the solution. And, and what Alex has just proposed is that you kind of have two tracks. It's kind of a new concept for me. And Rochelle, one of the things I'm wondering maybe you could speak to is whether or not we have to just admit that not all schools are alike. And you said, well, wh why would we accept turnover in one school system, or one school, but not another? And I think one of the things I recognized when I was at a public high school in New York City was that it was a tough environment. My principal was not supportive. The, te the, st the students were difficult. Uh, the teachers had a lot of energy, but often had trouble keeping it up. And I'm wondering, you know, you, you seem to respond to the suggestion that maybe th this is not, this is an insult to teachers who, who want to do it for a long period of time, but is it possible that this is a solution in schools that y you just can't help but recognize the situation is different? Recognize that schools are different, situations are different, communities are different, um, but the question is at some point are we just putting a band-aid on a real situation? And so if we're putting a bandage on a real situation that's bigger than the classroom teacher, the principal, the school, and we're asking um, the teacher who's in front of the kids to fix everything, I think we really need to think about that. So I mean, maybe Teach for America is right, because you know, you go in there for two years, at that point, after the two years, they're not asked to be accountable or responsible for that whole community situation. Whereas if you're there for 10 years, people start to look at you as part of the problem. I mean, you're, why aren't your test scores improving? Why is this community like this? Why aren't those kids doing that? Why do we have to have lots? I mean, I'm just saying. But what you, you raised a good point, and Alex did raise a good point. There have been lots of issues about 
the money following the teachers and how you do that in the school and the, the equity and re, um, reallocating the funding. So, I mean, that's a discussion um, that I am not equipped to talk it's about because I'm not a finance person. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I'm not, that's not my area of expertise. But, I mean, it's a, it's a real issue and people are talking about it as a possibility, things that we should experiment with. That said, um, but I think at some point we do have to recognize that there are some inequities that really exist in challenging schools that teach for America or any alt route, no alternative route, even traditional routes can't address. And so at what point, what are we really asking teachers to do? And when we're talking about state policy specifically, what state policies do we really want to focus on? Do we want to focus on policies that are going to deregulate teacher licensing? Or do we want to focus on policies that are really going to have a larger impact? So I, I got to jump in on that one because, um, you know, my organization is, you know, teacher certification is just one of a number of things that we focus on for exactly the reason that, that, that you've raised, that if we're serious about actually turning around an entire public school system, we've got to have a, multiple levers. Um, and the talent pipeline is a critical one, but we have to have political willingness to close truly chronically failing schools. We have to be willing to open new high-performing schools. That's why we support uh, the replication of high-performing charter schools, among other things. And we have to have data systems that actually tell us what's working. And you know, something we have not really addressed, I think, in a direct way on this panel is that many states can't even measure something called teacher effectiveness. No such thing. Um, it's, it's all about what process have teachers gone through to get into the classroom with no ability to say what those teachers, uh, what their impact is on student achievement. And, and so I wholeheartedly agree with you that this is only one piece of the picture. But when I think about it, I don't think about reforming teacher certification as deregulation. I think about it as smart regulation that's really geared to achieving the outcomes that, that we all want to achieve. And so I, I really agree that there are a lot of other things we need to do to support teachers to be effective. But having arbitrary regulations um, in place that have no connection to student achievement and with no way to even create a connection, um, you know, that's that's where where I, I see the, the need to make some immediate change. I'd also just like to jump in. I think that the the bar should be effectiveness. And again, you know, you have to sort of embrace this idea of multiple pathways. And I don't think, um, you know, we don't think Teach for America is a solution to everything much that as much as people may think that that's the case. Uh, we think we are part of the solution, certainly. Um, and I think that, you know, people also have this misperception about, uh, you know, we ask people for two-year commitment. Many people decide to teach longer than that. In fact, 30% of our alumni are still teaching. Um, but at that second year point, um, you know, now when we talk to people, it's like, well, what do you want to do next? It's not like, okay, no, now we really expect you to go to law school because that's what, you know, we know you're going to do. It's actually talking to people. If you've been effective in the classroom, you probably want to stay a little longer because you're doing a good job. You're feeling good about it. So I think people have a little bit of misconception about what happens. We bring people to the table, but we're not, you know, counseling them out at year two. And I think... Um, we need people in the classroom that can be effective with kids, but we also need people like Scott who can lead schools. We need people to work on the Hill. We need people to work for organizations like CONCAM. We need our alumni to really be driving this movement. Um, it's not just about what happens in the classroom. I'm gonna be real quick, but yeah, so we always get caught up in this issue. It's not replacing the pipeline. It's, it's expanding the pipeline, diversifying the pipeline. It's not keeping out people who can make a huge difference in schools is the issue of alternate route programs. The second thing, this has to get tucked into that larger conversation about licensure as a whole, and there's some 
you know, there's some crazy making things that happen with licensure that, that aren't related just to alt roots either. Uh, again, um, at, at my former school, uh, there was a math resource teacher who had a PhD in mathematics, had a traditional teacher license. She was told she couldn't be a math coach because her degree wasn't the right kind of degree. I mean, this is, it was never about effectiveness, it was about what was that right piece of paper. Similarly, I lost a PE teacher once, amazing best PE teacher I've ever had, had difficulty passing the writing portion of the praxis. I mean, there's some things out there about licensure that have nothing to do with teacher quality and have everything to do with, you know, the, the right check marks on boxes. And it, ultimately, it's got to get back to who's going to be most effective working with kids. And it, it helps the school system, helps the school district to get the best people into the right places. And Scott, while you're right, it's not about check marks and, and the right box and all that, but whatever the license is and whatever the requirements are, they should be consistent regardless of the route that you go. And so I, although you say it's not about deregulation, Alex, I do believe it's about deregulation and what's going on is deregulation as we try to open up and change standards and <coughs> have alternative standards for alternative routes because then you are changing the bar and so the bar is here for some and here for others or here for some and here for others. And so that is a deregulation because you're, you're opening it up but changing it, and so you're deregulating some of the standards that exist. So if you want, if everyone's going to end up with the same license and teach the same children, the standards should be the same. And, and actually the bill that we're hoping to introduce in Connecticut this year uh, says that there are four tracks of teachers who ought to be able to test in, including existing teachers who majored in one thing and want to switch uh, subject majors because I think I think you're right you know we should be moving towards a system of uh, people being able to that's geared around effectiveness rather than uh, arbitrary restrictions and you all do realize that the solution is to empower building principles to have ultimate <laughs> yes. power in all things I'm and I'm sorry I do <laughs> that was a joke he's pushing your button <laughs> Good afternoon, Judy Corsillo with the National Association for Alternative Certification. And after listening to all this conversation, I'd be remiss if I didn't point out that our organization represents the myriad of alternative certification programs that are out there. And Teach for America is one excellent example. But the, ma the majority of the programs um, running all training teachers through alternative routes are really focused on alternative routes to certification and ensuring that those teachers that they're recruiting and that they're preparing are coming in to get certified and to stay in the field. And more and more programs like Teach for America, they're different than they were in the early 90s. Everybody's changing and growing and improving and realizing that the purpose is to get more teachers into the profession to stay, um, that certification is an important part of it, that retention is an important part of it, and also that it's important to be providing the induction, mentoring, and support. So our organization- What is the question, please? What does the report say in terms of the importance of the state policies focusing on things like programs, um, offering induction, support, and other things that will lead to improved retention? The report says that mentoring and induction are critical components of high quality programs. Actually, let's have, let's take one more, one more question. The woman in the blue. I'm so glad to get a chance to speak. I'm from the Maryland State Department of Education. I actually direct all of the alternative preparation programs for the state of Maryland. 
this is a conversation about state policy. Uh, I'd like to get back to state policy, if we could, for just one second. Uh, in Maryland, uh, all programs, all 23 traditional teacher education programs and all 19 alternative preparation programs, which include TFA and TNTP, four-year, two-year school systems themselves, all meet the same standards. It's performance-based. It's not course-based. It's performance-based. We all meet those same standards. I think one of the policy things I'd like you to comment on, one of the things that is a reality that we've been dealing with in our work on the national level is that if you complete an alternative teacher preparation program, get fully certified by whatever state standards say you get that professional certification. Oftentimes, you cannot transfer that licensure because the origin was alternative teacher preparation. That's one of the things I'd like you to comment on. And one of the things I think when we look at this report and other reports, we should be focusing on in terms of state policy. State policy needs to follow that and effectiveness as well. So I'd like for you to comment on that just a little bit. There's a huge disparity across the country about how licensure happens. I'm the queen of data about alternative prep, by the way. We're totally supportive. Uh, uh, all of our alt prep programs uh, meet all the same standards and principles. 90% uh, of them say they're as good or better than other uh, than traditionally trained teachers. Would you comment on that uh, policy piece, please? Sure. Uh, I don't think you said your name. <laughs> I know. So Michelle and I worked together a little bit in Maryland. Um, so I would say that that's part of why we arrived at this recommendation about having a certificate that is set up specifically for alternate route candidates because part of what you can then build into it is that smooth transition to the next stage of licensure if you're in a state that has a tiered licensure structure. Um, because I think if you bring folks in on a substandard permit or license you end up in a situation where at the end of the, of the program, they may have trouble moving to the next stage of license. And as Scott points out, it can be these like little bureaucratic things that keep you from staying in the profession. And we just don't want to see that happen. So that's part of why that recommendation was included in there. And actually, though, what I think Michelle is speaking to is the NASDAQ um, finding that yeah. when you go from state to state, the states are actually checking behind the license. So it's not as much as moving from the tiered systems within the state that are the issue, but more so when you transfer from state to state, they found out that certain states were actually checking behind the license to see the preparation. So if you're looking at national, when we're looking at national policy, I think the bigger issue is, is it necessary to check behind a license that one state has issued if there's a reciprocity agreement in place? And the answer for that would be no, because if the reciprocity agreement is in place, then this person, this state is saying this individual is certified and meets our state standards. And so if we have a reciprocity agreement with, if this is DC, has a reciprocity agreement with Maryland, there should, Maryland should not check behind that license and say, well, how is that individual originally prepared? Because then you are questioning the reciprocity agreement, which is which then violates the, well, not violates it, but then it, it calls into question the entire NASTEC agreement. So I think the role for national policy in that is actually around and when you look at the conditions that are being attached to the release of stabilization dollars under, th under the federal stimulus, if we move to federal requirements about what teacher effectiveness actually means and how we measure it, then one state can have greater confidence that the certification pathway in another state actually means something. Because unfortunately right now, there, 
the, you know, it's a state-by-state state decision about whether to have reciprocity with other states. And certainly in my state of Connecticut, which unfortunately doesn't have reciprocity agreements, the reason is that back in the, in the heyday of uh, Connecticut's you know, uh, thought that it was leading the nation, they thought everyone else was um, letting them down. And now, of course, you know, that may no longer be true, but we're still keeping out lots of teachers because we think that other states haven't really focused on what they should. And if the federal government could provide some assurances there, it would be a lot easier for states to uh, agree to have reciprocity. Thank you. Uh, I think our conversation today has really illustrated the role that alternative certification programs can play in um, providing a, a supply of effective teachers for high poverty schools and for subject shortage areas. And I'd just like to echo something that Scott said. It's not about getting the right piece of paper, but getting effective teachers in front of the students who need them. And it's not about deregulation, but smart regulation. Thank you.